pouring my tea, my Chawny Chai, she's out. All right, what tea have you got? Okay, don't hate me. I couldn't get any Russian tea, it's actually Earl Grey. <laughs> oh, see, I've got Princess Nori, a classic Russian choice. I mean, yeah, I've got no milk, so that makes it Chawny, but hang on, what's Princess Noria? It's, it's a really famous brand of Russian black tea, do you not know it? Are you kidding? I've never heard of it before. Oh, big Russian expert. Oh no, you're exposing me on a Russian podcast, this is the worst. <laughs> Welcome to the 10 minute podcast series, post-Soviet press pod. I'm Eleanor and I'm joined by Lara. Hello. And we're members of the post-Soviet press group, a news discussion group at the School of Slavonic and Eastern European Studies at UCL, otherwise known as SEAS. We focus on the current affairs of the 15 countries of the former Soviet Union, from Estonia in the north through to Azerbaijan in the south and Russia to the east. In each episode, we'll be focusing on the basics, history, culture and news from one of these countries, and we'll be cramming it all into 10 minutes. So this week we're looking at Russia, a country in the news recently for political corruption and widespread protests, making it a hot topic. Full disclosure, Eleanor and I had planned to wash down the traditionally Russian rye bread and lard with a vodka shot, but we lost our nerve and we've decided to go for a chorny chai or black tea. Sadly, we don't have a samovar, which is the nice large traditional tea urn, but a chinik or teapot we do have. So let's go. I'm glad I was not looking forward to doing shots in the morning. We might be on tea, but should we still toast as if it's vodka? Absolutely. So tourists would say Nazdrovia, but if you want to sound like a real local, just say za plus anything you think is worth toasting. All right. What about to Russia, to the podcast and to seas? Perfect. Zara see you. Za podcast. Za sis. <laughs> Okay, all right, all right. That is enough toast for one day. Eleanor, kick us off with the basics. To start with the obvious facts, Russia, also called the Russian Federation, is the largest country in the world and extends across 11 time zones. According to its constitution, Russia is secular, but the largest religion in Russia is Russian Orthodox Christianity. Russian is the official language of the Russian Federation, though there are 193 ethnic groups that speak over 100 different languages. Oof, that's pretty big. So tell us how Russia got so massive. Well, we need to look at the history of Russia to answer that question. The precursor to Russia was not so big. To start at the very beginning, according to the oldest chronicle we have called the Primary Chronicle, in the year 862, a group of Slavic and Finno-Ugric tribes invited a Viking called Rurik to rule over them. The land he ruled is called Kievan Rus by historians, but was basically a group of decentralized principalities run by Rurik's alleged descendants. These principalities scanned from Kiev, the modern day capital of Ukraine, to Lagoda near Finland, to the Black Sea in the south and west to Ryazan. Fast forward to the year 988, Grand Prince Vladimir the Great decided that Rus should convert from paganism to Byzantine Orthodox Christianity. Why did he do that? Well, according to the Primary Chronicle, he sent envoys throughout the world to see the major religions of the time. Islam was apparently a no-go because alcohol and pork were not allowed, and as Vladimir said, drinking is the joy of all Rus. The adoption of Orthodox Christianity allowed Vladimir to unite the principalities of Rus under one religion, and it strengthened ties with the richer, more powerful, and much more developed Byzantine Empire. Okay, so did Rus then develop ties with other empires? They tried to, but then the Mongols came knocking on Rus's door and took over the territory of Rus from 1240 in what is called the Mongol yoke, effectively cutting Rus off from the west. The Mongols did, however, open Rus up to the Silk Road and introduce the joy of tax collection. So, pluses and minuses. How long did the Mongol yoke last? 
effectively until 1480 when Ivan III beat the Mongol horde in the great stand on the Ugra. So by this point, the great horde wasn't very great or much of a horde. Right, so when the Mongol yoke ended, did Russia become an empire? No, but Ivan III did start centralising Rus under the Principality of Muscovy. This was continued by his grandson, Ivan IV, better known as Ivan the Terrible, who also started the large-scale colonisation of Siberia in 1555. Ivan IV was also the first, the first Tsar of Russia, a title derived from the Latin word Caesar. Where do the Romanovs and the Russian Empire fit into all of this then? The Romanovs took over after a long dynastic struggle called the Time of Troubles from 1598 to 1613. Russia officially became the Russian Empire when Peter the Great assumed the title Emperor in 1682. Peter the Great was keen to increase Western influence in Russia and built the city of St. Petersburg as a window to Europe. In terms of territory, from the 17th century to the 1830s, the Russian Empire acquired Finland, all Persian territories, some Ottoman territories, including Armenia, Nagorno-Karabakh, Azerbaijan, Siberia, part of Poland, and the Baltics, and what is now Ukraine. And that's everything? That's most of it, yes. Nicholas II was the last Tsar of Russia, and under his rule we saw the 1905 revolution, then the February 1917 revolution, which resulted in Nicholas II's abdication. Soon after the October 1917 revolution, a civil war between the Bolsheviks, the Reds, and the counter-revolutionaries, the Whites, broke out. The Reds won, establishing the Soviet Union in 1922. The Soviet Union lasted until its collapse in 1991, after which Boris Yeltsin governed Russia as president for eight years, until Putin took over as acting president at the very end of 1999. Putin has remained president up to this day, with a brief interlude of prime minister from 2008 to 2012, when Dmitry Medvedev served as president. Okay, but hang on a minute. Are you going to skip over the whole of the Soviet Union just like that in a sentence? Well, no, but I thought this would be a good time for you as our culture expert to take listeners through the Soviet to post-Soviet years through the prism of culture. Well, yes, I, I quite like that idea. Take it away, then. <clears throat> the Soviet era was possibly one of the most exciting, dangerous and frustrating times for creative production in Russian history, starting even before the 1917 revolution. Revolutionary art was emerging as early as 1913 in the work of artists who would form the modernist movements called Futurism, Suprematism and Constructivism. These movements rejected old imperial tastes and demanded change, much like the social and political revolutionaries would a few years later. So were these modernist movements purely to do with the change in fine art? Not at all. Change was happening in all areas. Architecture, film, photography, poetry, literature. For example, in 1913, Vladimir Halebnikov and Alexei Khrushchev wrote the poetic manifesto Slova Kaktakovoya, or The Word as Such. These poets took apart Russian words and stuck them back together in strange ways. Similarly, Kazimir Malevich presented familiar shapes in unfamiliar ways. His famous work, Chorny Quadrat, or Black Square, painted in 1915, was the start of suprematism, which influenced other fields. Which other fields? So take architecture. Lenin recognised that not only art, but also buildings could impact the masses and unite them under the cause of socialism. Lenin thought that building impressive socialist palaces and monuments would inspire people to support the socialist cause. This is why constructivist architect Vladimir Tatlin and his famous Tower of 1920 was popular amongst the party. It was too expensive to be built, but was designed in this spirit of modernism and revolution. So when Stalin came to power, what happened? So Stalin introduced an art movement called Socialist Realism, which depicted a happy, harmonious socialist society. Think propagandistic but idyllic images of Stalin hugging children in the fields of an abundant motherland. Hardly a true reflection of the country he was starving and the people he was sending to the gulag. A system of prison camps to which citizens were sent to do manual labour, often working to their death. So after 1953, the year that Stalin died, was there more freedom? 
Uh, if only. The Soviet leaders' policies on censorship remained strong, and a lot of artistic creation was forced underground. That said, some works managed to slip through the net. For example, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, a tale of Stalin's gulag prison system, made it to print in 1962 in the Soviet Union, and won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1970. This did come at a price, though, as Solzhenitsyn had to flee the USSR and live in exile from 1976 until 1990. So at what point did artists in the Soviet Union feel able to express themselves? It wasn't really until the 1980s that Gorbachev's glasness period, which translates as openness, allowed for a real explosion of freedom in art and mass media. This was the era of Moscow conceptualist art and ironic sots art, Russian rock music and Chernucha cinema. Chernucha. I'm assuming that comes from the word Chorny, the Russian word for black. Exactly. This type of cinema took a dark view of Soviet life, seeking to undermine the past and show the grim realities of Soviet society. This tradition lasted until Yeltsin's wild 90s too, when the Russian Mafia was everywhere and people found themselves living in a lawless, unpoliced state. So that takes us up to Putin's 20-year stint at the top. What cultural developments have we seen under his reign? Well, the term post-Soviet has definitely become a buzzword. In fashion, the arrival of Gosha Rubchinsky has led people all over the world to buy clothes of Cyrillic on without even knowing the meaning. Online, queer celebrities like Alexander Gudkov and YouTube journalists like Yuri Dud are encouraging progressive attitudes amongst Russian youth. That said, Putin's cultural policies are still compared by some to Soviet-style censorship. Speaking of censorship, now is probably a good time to discuss Russian news and the biggest headlines coming out of the country this year. Definitely. What have you got? I'm not sure if you've heard of a little global pandemic. Mm, rings a bell. So Russia has developed a coronavirus vaccine known as Sputnik V, V for victory, not five as I thought, and it's 92% effective. The vaccine was initially met with a lot of scepticism, including allegations that certain companies were forcing employees to get vaccinated with Sputnik V, and others claiming that the vaccine is a form of political competition, as it shows that Russia could compete with the West. Certainly the vaccine is political, as the Russian Minister of Foreign Affairs, Sergei Lavrov, offered free vaccinations for the entire UN workforce. Some see this as a form of soft power in order to project a more positive image of Russia abroad. As much as I love talking about COVID, maybe we should mention a man who has dominated the news since August last year. Would that be Alexei Navalny by any chance? Yes, it would. As you know, Navalny is the most prominent opposition figure against the Putin regime, and he was poisoned with a nerve agent called Novichok by FSB agents before boarding a flight from Tomsk to Moscow in August 2020. He became violently ill during the flight, resulting in an emergency landing in Omsk. After a few days, he was flown to Germany, where he spent months recovering. He then returned to Moscow on the 17th of January 2021 and was detained at passport control on the pretext that he had violated parole conditions relating to a fraud conviction handed down in 2014. A conviction that the European Court of Human Rights ruled was arbitrary and manifestly unreasonable in 2017. On the 2nd of February 2021, Navalny's suspended sentence for the fraud case was turned into two years and eight months behind bars. The crime he is really being punished for, it seems, is exposing the most notorious cases of corruption connected to Putin and his inner circle on his YouTube channel and elsewhere online. Wow, pretty classy to poison someone, then detain them for violating parole while they were recovering. Has Navalny gone quiet since his arrest? Not at all. Navalny posted a video to his channel on the 19th of January, just two days after being detained, to send the message he's not afraid of Putin. Titled Putin's Palace, the video details the embezzlement and corruption that apparently allowed Putin to fund the construction of a ridiculously expensive private residence on the Black Sea. The video has been viewed more than 100 million times. Then protests across Russia began on the 23rd of January, and oppositional fervour continues still. Definitely a story to keep an eye on then. Do you think the opposition will actually be able to oppose Putin? That's a tough one. Putin certainly won't make it easy, as he's constantly changing the law. 
And in 2020 alone, he managed to pass sweeping changes to the Russian constitution. The most important changes allow him to run for two more presidential terms. So we could be looking at how many more years of Putinist rule? Assuming he wins the next two elections and he remains in a fit state to govern, he could serve as president until 2036, by which time he'll be 83. Whoa, so here's to another 15 and a half years then. All of this news raises a lot of questions like, who will succeed Putin? If he remains in power, how will Russian autocracy and or democracy evolve? Will the opposition succeed and how will the West respond to Navalny's calls for sanctions? Well, that's for me to know and you to find out, Eleanor. But before we sign off, we'd like to thank Mark Galliotti and Ben Noble for their expert help in preparing this episode. And if you want to learn more about Russia, Mark's book, A Short History of Russia, will tell you everything you need to know. And Ben has a book coming out in September all about Navalny. Or if you want to hear more about the cultural side of things, head over to the Russian Art and Culture podcast on Spotify and check out my new series called Kusochek as I interview a number of cultural experts about all areas of Russian culture. Bye then. See you next time.